Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing that we have on our website. Sign up for SubChina Access and you get all that and a whole lot more with stories and everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from across the Appalachians in Nashville, Tennessee, is a man riding that fine, fine line between panda hugger and panda slugger, <laughs> Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, greet the people, won't you? Okay, you've unveiled our, our secret new word to the public, uh, coined by our sub-China colleague, Jesse. Um, panda slugger is our new word yeah, uh, to replace dragon slayer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot better. Thanks, Jesse. Panda slugger. Great word. Thank you, Kaiser. I'm doing very well. Very well indeed. Okay, great. Well, let's jump right in because we have a fascinating topic and a great guest this week. Uh, why and under what conditions does China's military strategy change? How has it evolved over the, the 70 years since the founding of the PRC? And how does our understanding of China's military strategy and the circumstances that cause it to change, how does that help us to better understand the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army, the PLA? Uh, how does it help us understand China's regional ambitions, China's evolving worldview, uh, the, the operations of the Chinese political system? Well, joining us from his home in Brookline, Mass., to talk about all of this is the author of a new book about the PLA and its military strategy, Taylor Fravel, in what, if I recall, is his second appearance on this show. But it, your first one, Taylor, I think it was like six years ago or so? Six or seven years. It actually may have been 2012, seven years Ancient ago. history. Oh, my gosh. Seven years ago. My Lord. Anyway, Taylor, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. You know, the, you've got so many accolades. I, I'm just going to quickly, uh, you're Arthur and, and Ruth Sloan, professor of political science and member of the security studies program at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, Taylor is also one of the world's leading authorities on the Chinese military and was the author of a book called Strong Borders, Secure Nation, Cooperation and Conflict in China's Territorial Disputes, uh, which was published back in 2008 and which we talked about on our last show. Uh, his new book is called Active Defense, China's Military Strategy Since 1949, and we're going to be delving into that for, for the next hour. Uh, Taylor is one of those people who makes me feel like a complete slacker. He's a graduate of Middlebury College and Stanford University, where he received his PhD. He was also a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, of course, and has another graduate degree from the London School of Economics. He is also principal investigator for the Maritime Awareness Project. Taylor Fravel, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm just going to take yeah. some of the air out of this because, you know, the, that, that Rhodes Scholarship produced just another BA. Just another huh? BA. It yeah. wasn't. A... <laughs> and, 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 and as my uh, wife likes to remind me, I've never, I've never really held, quote, a real job in my entire career. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, you're lucky. <laughs> indeed. Um, Taylor, uh, on this show uh, recently, we've talked quite a bit about uh, grand strategy. So before we really dive in, can you explain the 
the relationship between military strategy and grand strategy? Sure, yeah, that's a great question to start with. So, I mean, there are different definitions of grand strategy out there, but one uh, common one is that it's a sort of theory of security or or a a vision of how a state uh, creates security for itself, and in particular, how it uses a combination of diplomatic, economic, and military tools uh, to achieve uh, its sort of broadest uh, political objectives in the international system. And so military strategy is really about one subset of grand strategy, or one one of the tools of grand strategy, namely the military tool. And so it outlines uh, basically the role that military force uh, will play according to the state to achieve uh, its national objectives. That is a terrific way of distinguishing military strategy from what's above it. So military strategy then is a subset of grand strategy. Uh, but how do we distinguish it from what's below it hierarchically. I mean, I assume that there's something at the level of theater operations that is uh, much more than just tactical, but doesn't quite rise to the level of military strategy, just to zero in on what we are talking about in this book. That's right. So uh, at least in the context of this book, I I should probably use uh, the phrase national military strategy, because I'm definitely, uh, in the case of China, focusing on the strategy for the armed forces as a whole and how it thinks about uh, using force. Certainly uh, in any particular conflict, um, one might think about uh, strategies in particular campaigns or even in particular theaters of campaigns uh, during wartime. Uh, In peacetime, of course, uh, individual military units will practice uh, what's often described as tactics, techniques, and procedures, or how they're going to execute their very specific military operation. And all those uh, things at the operational and tactical level lie below uh, sort of the threshold of national military strategy, which really tries to outline uh, how the armed forces are going to be organized overall, um, what their main objectives are, and how they're going uh, to pursue, pursue or achieve those objectives. Uh, Taylor, one last question on the definition of, of strategy before we move on to the, the meat of the book, which is, do your Chinese counterparts uh, look at it in the same way? Do they have the same working definitions of grand strategy and military strategy and what their, their relationship? Uh, that's a terrific question. I think in terms of military strategy, there's probably a pretty wide agreement among uh, sort of military professionals inside China and outside China as to what constitutes military strategy. But of course, everything has Chinese characteristics. And uh, with respect to military strategy, those characteristics have a lot to do with how uh, Mao Zedong defined war uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, even though in some ways he was drawing on uh, the work of a Western military strategist, uh, strategist uh, Clausewitz. Uh, but, but nevertheless, when, when the Chinese uh, provide official definitions uh, in their military manuals about military strategy, they'll often start with uh, Mao's own definition. But it doesn't differ substantially from definitions that uh, one would use in other countries and contexts. Regarding grand strategy, I'm not sure that it has received as much scholarly attention in China as it has, uh, at least in the United States. Of course, on the one hand, Chinese uh, scholars have written probably tens of thousands of articles and books that have grand strategy in the title, but they never seem to offer a clear and consistent uh, definition of what grand strategy is, although I think probably the the essence of it is still nevertheless uh, the same, namely how a state thinks about uh, using uh, its different um, 
tools of statecraft, especially the diplomatic, economic, and military tools to achieve its national objectives. Thanks, Taylor. That clears it up. And uh, I just wanted to make sure we weren't talking about, uh, you know, Martians when the Chinese were talking about people from Saturn. Um, But to get on to the book, it sets out to explain the major changes in military strategy that we've seen since 1949 in China. And you have quite a simple, straightforward thesis about the conditions that seem to produce those major changes. Can you lay that out for us? Sure. Thanks very much. So basically, the argument that I put forward in the book is that uh, there are two factors that determine when China has been much more likely to pursue what I call a major change in its military strategy. And let me define major change briefly. What I mean here is uh, that uh, the strategy offers a new vision of warfare or how war should be conducted and requires uh, substantial uh, changes uh, to a military organization that would be reflected in its operational doctrine, which outlines how it will fight, its force structure or the forces uh, that it would use to carry out that doctrine, and then training of those forces in a way that's consistent uh, with the doctrine. So a major change is a really uh, significant uh, shift in how a military might prepare uh, to go to war. And in the book, I offer an argument that explains how this occurs uh, in the Chinese uh, context. And I focus on two parts. The first part has to do uh, with China's external security environment. And in particular, I I argue that uh, Chinese military officers pay very close attention to shifts in the conduct of warfare as practiced by other states in the system, especially uh, great powers uh, who have uh, the greatest military uh, capability. Uh, Because uh, for much of its history since 1949, China has been what I call a late military modernizer or a state that that is trying to to catch up in terms of its military capability and and its military power. It watches pretty closely uh, what other countries do. And and when when in the course of those observations, it detects a a significant shift in the conduct of warfare, then that is a cue for China to pursue change in its own uh, strategy. However, there's a catch, or, or there's a second part to the argument, which has to do with the domestic political conditions that make such a change possible. And here I focus on something called party unity, which I define as agreement among the top party leaders over sort of the structure of authority within the party, as well as the basic policies that the party is going to pursue. And the basic argument here is that when the party is united, it delegates a substantial amount of authority and autonomy to China's senior military officers uh, to engage in all aspects of military affairs to include uh, revising China's uh, military strategy. So to paraphrase Mae West, when it's good, it's very, very good. When the party is united, uh, the military uh, officers will sort of scan the external security environment and see if a change in strategy is warranted. And perhaps that change that is warranted is a major change. However, when the party uh, when the party uh, unity collapses, then uh, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Uh, the PLA becomes paralyzed as a military organization, either because it injects itself into the intra-party politics or uh, different elites uh, within the fractured uh, party leadership try to woo the military for this reason or that reason. So there are lots of different ways in which party disunity can prevent the formulation of a military strategy. But the main point here is that when the party is united, um, then uh, the PLA is much more, or the PLA senior leadership is much more likely to propose uh, new changes in strategy and major changes if uh, conditions warrant doing so. Well, great. Uh, and we'll be talking about some of the instances in which these happen and don't happen, whether you know there's some uh, change in the way that wars are conducted that would, in ordinary circumstances, under conditions of unity, produce that kind of military strategic change. But don't because of disunity. So we'll talk about that. But I think you make the case uh, for your thesis pretty convincingly. Uh, But 
how would you characterize the significance of knowing this? In other words, how does it change pre-existing or prevailing notions about the dynamics of Chinese military strategy? How does your thesis change that? I mean, I imagine there must have been conventional wisdom uh, of people in your field that got certain things wrong uh, when talking about Chinese military strategy. So what what were these common misconceptions? What what held sway before? Sure. I, I, and uh, how does that change? Yeah, yeah, no. I think there are probably at least two. Uh, the, the first would be, uh, more of an empirical question, simply how uh, the field viewed China's military strategy in the pre-reform period or during the Mao era. And I think for a long time, many people, myself included, before I, I got into the subject, assumed that uh, throughout the Mao era, China's approach to military affairs was dominated by people's war and guerrilla tactics, right? That it was not a very modern force. Yeah. It was not a very professional force. It was a ragtag force. Um, and it, it was inherently uh much more revolutionary uh, than anything else. And one of the big empirical findings that comes out of my research is that uh, the PLA uh, leadership, the senior officers of the PLA, since the very founding of the PRC in 1949, have sought to build a modernized uh, professional uh, military. Uh, and so that process happened much earlier uh, than I thought was the case. It was certainly interrupted during sort of the excesses of the Mao era, in particular from the mid-1960s uh, to the late 1980s. But nevertheless, even the modernization drive that we're witnessing today has its roots in uh, the founding of the People's Republic and the de desire of uh, the senior military officers at that time to build a modern and professionalized uh, force. So empirically, I, I think it tells us something new. And then in terms of how we right. think about military organizations uh, more generally, uh, there's been a very powerful argument associated with Samuel Huntington that uh, military professionalism uh, cannot take root in heavily politicized armed forces. Uh, in other words, when elites uh, seek to curry the favor of the armed forces or when the armed forces are beholden to one political party, then they're much less likely to be professional. And Huntington called this uh, subjective uh, civilian control. The term is a bit of a mouthful, but that's the term he came up with. And Subjective civilian subjective control. Subjective civilian control. And he, he contrasted okay. this with objective civilian control, which basically said uh, you have to set up a system w within your national government that depoliticizes the armed forces. And when they're depoliticized, they will enjoy autonomy and thus engage as professionals. And so the big finding that comes out in terms of civil military relations from my research is that China on the one hand, or the PLA on the one hand, is a heavily politicized force, right? It's the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party, what, what brought the Chinese Communist Party to power in the revolution. Uh, but on the other hand, nevertheless, uh, and actually because it is a party army, uh, because it is beholden just to one political party, nevertheless, under these conditions of party unity, uh, the PLA um, has enjoyed substantial autonomy that has allowed it to engage in quite a professional manner at certain points in its history. Yeah, and we're going to get into that. Let's let's get into that qu question a little bit later about, I mean, because I think it is a bit counterintuitive to a lot of people to, to imagine this CCP-dominated army having as much autonomy as you ascribe to it. But let's get into that after we've laid out a little more of your argument, because this sure. bring, comes up when we talk about the 1964 uh, reorganization. But first, some other sort of groundwork before we get into that. So, so Taylor said that there's this empirical bit of it, uh, so it, it definitely challenges some pre-existing notions about this idea of people's war, uh, and again, about the, the autonomy of the, of the military, the relative autonomy of the, of the PLA, even under the CCP, which we'll talk about, as I say, later. Um, what are some of the other things that it sheds light on, other uh, 
aspects of, of the the mechanisms of, of control that the party has over the PLA. What what else do you think that your your work brings to light? Well, I think it uh, perhaps can illuminate a couple of other different issues. One might be perhaps too narrowly military, but one thing that I really came away with after doing this research is how much in some respects the PLA functions like a party organization and not just a military organization. And so it makes a lot of its decisions by committee, hmm. um, the most important committee of which is the Central Military Commission under the Central Committee of, of the Chinese Communist Party itself. And here, of course, the Central Military Commission is technically a party body and not a military body, even though it's almost always been staffed with primarily military officers ever since it was created um, in its current form in the mid-1950s. But as I looked uh, through uh, even the way in which uh, they would think about changing strategy, they would still, of course, form a committee to, <laughs> right. to explore what to do, right? And they would have um, these enlarged uh, meetings of the Central Military Commission, uh, which were sort of like party congresses, right? There would be a main work report or a main report that was delivered. You'd have breakout groups that would discuss the significance of the report. And of course, that was part of a process of ensuring that uh, the contents of the report, whatever the topic of the meeting was, would be embraced by the senior leadership. And so the, in, in a lot of perhaps uh, somewhat more subtle ways, I, 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 came to appreci- I came to appreciate something I didn't appreciate before, which is in, in, in terms of perhaps its work style, how much like the Communist Party uh the PLA actually is. And perhaps that's not surprising given that it is part of, of the Chinese Communist Party. But I had come into, come into this project with a, a notion that perhaps it, it was a bit more uh, different or it might have its own uh, kind of uh, procedures and ways of doing things. Oh, great. Uh, Taylor, how, how does China's rationale for implementing or for not implementing new military strategy uh, differ from the drivers uh, for, for, for this in other major states, in other peers that China has. I mean, in other words, uh, isn't it the case that other states would sort of look around them in the world, see new ways in warfighting technologies that have been introduced, uh, make adjustments and either implement them or not implement them according to whether, you know, they are able to, whether conditions are, 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 are stable enough at home to make it possible. Is it significantly different than the way other states manage this process? So I wouldn't say it's entirely different. I would say that there are perhaps some unique features or characteristics of the Chinese case. Um, I don't want to say this is strategy making with Chinese characteristics, but perhaps I'm going to fall victim to that uh, trope. Uh, it's inescapable. I, but, but it's inescapable. But 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 perhaps you can think about you know what is similar and what's different. And so. Certainly in other research from this vast uh, literature on military doctrine and innovation that we have in political science, scholars have tended to focus on external factors and prompting states to revise their military strategies. And they focused on sort of four uh, general uh, sort of external motives. One would be one that applies to all states, namely the rise of a new new threat that a state hadn't faced before, especially if it was a pressing threat, then you might see a state uh, retool its military strategy to deal with that threat. Um, Again, that applies to to, to most states, would apply to China in some cases too. Uh, The the second factor that gets a lot of attention uh, is what uh, one scholar calls a a reactive change in strategy or a reactive innovation. And this has to do with states that are in pretty intense rivalries with each other. I think the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And so they really closely monitor 
each other's doctrines, and then if they see a shift in, in the doctrine of their opponent, they're more likely to change uh, their own strategy. And that argument is, is a bit more restrictive, but uh, nevertheless was applied to, as I said, the U.S. and the Soviet Union during mm -hmm. the Cold War. A third um, class of arguments focuses on the role of new technologies and how states uh, develop new technologies and then think about ways of applying them to war fighting and thus, uh, in essence, develop new ways of war fighting and then develop new strategies to, uh, to capitalize on those ways of war fighting. And a classic example here would be this crazy notion in, at the turn of the century or last century that you could somehow land airplanes on ships, right? <laughs> Uh, and create the aircraft carrier. But once you created the aircraft carrier, all of a sudden you could do things uh, you never could do before. And that created a whole new kind of set of possibilities for other uh, kinds of strategies you might adopt. Uh, but typically the only states that can engage in or that might change their own strategies for that reason would be those that have an advanced industrialized base that can generate sort of new basic technologies and then think about applying them uh, to right. war fighting. And then a fourth uh, general factor would be simply that scholars have focused on how a change in a state's interests uh, change its military strategy. And one example here would be uh, the U.S. acquisition of the Philippines, right? All of a sudden uh, changed how the U.S. thought about naval strategy because it had this territory it had to defend in the Pacific right. Ocean, right? So these can apply to different states at different periods in time. I think changing interests applies uh, specifically or, or, or most importantly to rising powers. And this could be a really important driver of China's uh, strategy in the future. And so in some ways, uh, what I focus on in terms of uh, shifts in the conduct of warfare is not separate from these other external factors. It's not like an independent model, but rather it complements uh, what other scholars have focused on before. Right. I can I can certainly think of, of examples of each of these four things that China has confronted as well. Yeah. So I, I don't think China is unique in, in that sense. What Where China is perhaps unique is uh, the role in party unity, and, and namely uh, this idea that uh, we may assume in the context of other militaries, especially Western militaries uh, or militaries in the advanced industrialized countries, that not as, as not really facing severe domestic political obstacles to changing strategy if senior officers believe it is warranted, right? Uh, because of the way in which these societies are constituted with, you know, rule of law and constitutions and everything else that 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 we just assume away that there has to be a domestic political condition that makes a change in strategy possible and in china you just can't assume it away um, it, it's it, it's it's a feature of of uh, how the chinese communist party uh, governs the country uh, taylor i just um trying to get my uh rather simple head around the the actual creation communication of um military strategy. So I'm thinking, say, in the United States, uh, by my understanding, there are some documents, the National Security Strategy, National Defense Strategy, National Military Strategy, Quadrennial Defense Review, and a bunch of others put out by the military, put out by the government, and these set out U.S. strategy. First of all, is that correct? And what is the Chinese equivalent in terms of the sort of setting and then the communication uh, of military strategy? I'm sorry if this question is very basic. No, not at all. It's actually, it's a really good question and actually gets back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of grand strategy and military strategy. So in the U.S. context, you could think of the national security strategy, which is typically published uh, by the White House as setting out the country's uh, grand strategy. Some may dispute that claim, but, you know, it's it's a close enough approximation. And then from that follows the national defense strategy, which outlines, I think, the basic goals to be achieved um, 
through what would then be the national military strategy. Um, and then those goals that are contained in the national military strategy are often fleshed out in what's known as the Quadrennial Defense Review. Now, the Quadrennial Defense Review is issued every four years, but those other three documents are not issued on any particular timetable and can be drafted again whenever an administration thinks it's warranted. Now, in the, in the Chinese setting, um, one might think about it uh, this way, perhaps. The equivalent of grand strategy would be contained in some part of the work report delivered at, at a National Party Congress that certainly in the reform era has been held every five years. And then uh, the PLA itself would draft uh, military strategy in something that's known as the, the strategic guideline or the military strategic guideline, uh, the Zhang Lia Fang Zhen. And these are um, basically what embodies national military strategy in a Chinese context. And it's drafted uh, by the central the Central Military Commission or some uh, component of the Central Military Commission presented uh, before the entire leadership of the PLA in what's known as an enlarged meeting of the PLA, which usually gather, uh, gathers together the top two to 300 officers, and then um, agreed upon at that meeting. Uh, now, it will typically receive the consent or the approval of the top party leader, but they will be approving it in their capacity as chairman of the Central Military Commission, not really in their capacity as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And so once the Central Military Commission decides upon a new strategic guideline, it is then uh, the duty and obligation of the PLA to determine how best uh, to carry out and Im implement that guideline uh, going forward. And this is all done fairly publicly then, right? I mean, not the meetings themselves, but the product is accessible to anyone who, who cares to, to read it, right? So now this is a actually a huge difference between the U.S. and the Chinese systems. So in the United States, you can Google national security strategy, national defense strategy, national military strategy, and find PDFs of all the relevant copies that have been produced in the digital age, and maybe even some scans of those that were from the pre-digital age. In China, however, uh, because the military is part of the party, uh, military decisions are usually not widely communicated outside of military channels. And so certainly the top party leadership would be aware of a change in the strategic guideline, but it would not be contained in a document that would be uploaded to a PLA website that anyone in China or outside of China could then download. And this actually is one challenge I faced in identifying all of the times that China did change its strategy because um, none of these documents are ever published at the time in which the decision is made. Uh, sometimes we have copies of the report in which the strategy was changed that are in the archives and subsequently published. And other times all we have are accounts of the strategy being changed, contained in memoirs of uh, uh, party uh, officials and uh, senior military officers. And Taylor, so uh, it can't just be sort of teased out of the, the work reports that are given every five years? No, so it's, it's generally not contained in the, in the work report. Oh, I see. Um, so the, the work report would sim simply just kind of outline the basic objectives that the party is pursuing, and that's the context in which a military strategy might be formulated. So in that sense, the work report could approximate kind of laying out the grand strategic objectives, but then it would still be up to us, uh -huh. uh, the military to decide how to do that. And you can think of this perhaps uh, uh, with, an, with an analogy to the economic policymaking realm. So we do know right there are these economic work conferences. They typically happen every year towards the end of the year to kind of plan economic work for the coming year. And uh, they presumably produce a set of documents that, that then guide, guide economic work for the coming year. 
in, in the case of military strategy, it follows the same model, except that they don't, they don't necessarily have a meeting to reconsider China's military strategy every year. Certainly, the, mil, the Central Military Commission has it in large meetings several times a year, but it would be up to the leadership of, of the Chinese uh, military to decide when uh, to uh, pursue a change in strategy. Right. Speaking of changes in strategy, let's get back to the main meat of the book here. You talk about three, maybe you could say four major changes. So you have the 1956, the possibly 1964, though we'll talk about why you don't really quite include that, 1980 and 1993, uh, and there are finer, a few sort of minor adjustments thrown in in, in 77, in, in uh, 1988, and then the 2004 and 2014 uh, changes that you talk about at, at greater length. So but let's go back to the first couple first uh, and, and deal with them fairly succinctly, hopefully, in the 1956 strategy which is called Defend the Motherland, right? Or that's the name that... that, that. Yes. So what were the international changes in warfare that drove the change, and what was the political situation internally at the t- at that time, 56? So we're talking the eve of, of the, the Great Leap Forward, high tide of collectivization. Uh, but also, you know, a few years after the end of the Korean War, was the Korean War the factor? So before I talk about the international factors, let me just briefly... Uh, set the stage. Uh, and the stage would be the, the nature of the PLA and the Red Army as, as it was known uh, before the mid-1940s in China, right? And so the way in which the Communist Party came to power was uh, by uh, building a massive light infantry force. And what I mean here is that you had foot soldiers who uh, carried you know, rifles, submachine guns, perhaps machine guns and mortars, but little else. They didn't have any trucks, they didn't have any tanks, uh, they didn't have any armored vehicles, they had few airplanes and so forth, right? So, um, and also that's the nature of the force that the PLA went to war with on the Korean Peninsula. And that's important for understanding uh, how uh, Chinese military leaders at the time thought about uh, the kind of military they wanted to build and the kind of strategy that they wanted to pursue. So the main influences in this context were uh, observations of both uh, the fighting in uh, the Second World War as well as China's own experiences on the Korean Peninsula. And so the Second World War uh, was uh, an example of the mechanization and industrialization of warfare, right? You had U.S. and Soviet and German forces equipped with tanks, armored vehicles, trucks. They could move lots of forces pretty quickly. They could engage in pretty high-intensity operations. They could use a lot of artillery and so forth. And so that uh, really loomed large in the eyes of, of many people because it was such a significant war in the international system. And so you see Chinese military officers in the early 1950s, even before Korea, talking a lot about uh, World War II and, and what that means for the kind of military that uh, China itself should develop based upon this light infantry right. force. When China goes into the Korean War, it uh, engages one of the two most powerful states to emerge from the Second World War, the United States, and it learns a, a, a lot of lessons firsthand about just how destructive modern industrialized warfare could be at that time, right? The Chinese light infantry forces were very vulnerable. Uh, they had they, they faced a lot of constraints in terms of uh, capitalizing on uh, breakthroughs on the battlefield, especially once the United States uh, began to uh, get a better appreciation of Chinese tactics um, that they were using in Korea. And so you really have these two different influences. I think the overall context would be uh, Chinese assessments of, of what were the key characteristics of uh, combat in the Second World War and what that meant for building a modern force for the People's Republic of China and then China's own experience on the battlefield in Korea. Right. Right. Now, turning to the domestic uh, political 
uh, conditions. Um, the early to mid-1950s, and of course it breaks down by the time of the Great Leap perhaps, but the early to, to mid-1950s was a period of unprecedented unity among the party. Uh, they had achieved uh, victory in the revolution. They had more or less defeated the nationalists except for Taiwan, and they had this ability now uh, to start uh, engaging in uh, what was described as uh, socialist modernization and building you know, a strong, powerful, wealthy uh, socialist country. And so there was a lot of unity among the party at this time. Not, of course, complete unity. There's always politics. But nevertheless, uh, there's, there was agreement upon who was the leader, Mao, and there was also agreement on what the basic policy was, which was socialist modernization. And so in that context, uh, the leadership of the PLA, especially Peng Dehuai, had wide latitude to uh, engage uh, in the formulation of military strategy, as well as uh, the design of reforms that would uh, build the, 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 the PLA into a, a much more uh, modern force. And some important elements here have to do with the fact that the PLA in the Civil War is not just a light infantry force or primarily a light infantry force, but also uh, it did not have what uh, military prof professionals would call uh, standardized uh, tables of organization and equipment, mm -hmm. right? So units from different field armies uh, were trained in different ways, operated in slightly different ways. Did uh, they, they might have used different kinds of rifles with different calibers of ammunition and so forth. And so one thing Peng Dehuai knew he had to do was to create a military force that would be uniform, right? So that uh, its full potential could be more easily tapped. And that required instituting a, a lot of reforms in the early to mid-1950s that then feed into the adoption of the new strategy in 1956 that can try to uh, take advantage of a force that was more standardized and had been uh, 10 years earlier during the Civil War. Great, great, great. Taylor, you talk about how the PLA's thinking gleaned mainly from the war of resistance against Japan and from the Civil War casts uh, a long shadow. How would you characterize the major tenets of the 1956 strategy, and how does that long shadow manifest itself? Sure. So I think I may have already mentioned one of them. And So, so, so one tenet is this idea that... Um, the PLA was going to be transformed from a light infantry force into a, a fully uh, modernized military that would have an army, a navy, as well as um, an air force. And within uh, the army or the ground forces, it would have tanks, artillery, anti-aircraft uh, systems, and so forth, right? So in terms of at least the organizational look and feel, it would be not dissimilar from other militaries at the time. But it casts a long shadow for a couple of other reasons. Firstly, uh, Peng's strategy or the 1956 strategy focused on engaging uh, in what uh, the PLA would call positional mm -hmm. warfare. So again, to go back to the Civil War for a minute, there are generally three kinds of uh, warfare that the PLA or Red Army engaged in. There's mobile warfare in which light infantry forces would basically fight on a fluid front. So they would um, engage the enemy when they could, especially when they could muster a local superior forces. And then as soon as uh, they were victorious, they would retreat and disperse, right? So there was no kind of fixed line where the two forces would be uh, facing off against each other. Um, so, and mobile warfare was the dominant way in which the PLA fought during most of the Civil War. Uh, they also occasionally engage in, engage in positional warfare where you would defend a fixed position and try to hold territory. And then finally, of course, in areas that have been occupied by the Japanese or the nationalists, they would engage in guerrilla warfare. Uh, but nevertheless, mobile warfare was the dominant way of fighting uh, in the Civil War and uh, for much of the Korean War, at least through the summer of 1951. So this is important in the context of the 1956 strategy because it, it was a strategy that basically clearly rejected uh, the emphasis on mobile warfare from the Civil War and said, look, we have to um, try to 
uh, defend our new country, and we don't want to cede large tracts of land to an invading force if we don't have to do so. Um, and so it, it was a really significant change in the mindset of the PLA to focus on defending fixed positions, uh, or what you might also call a forward defense, versus engaging in mobile warfare where you would cede territory if you simply weren't able to control right. it. Um, That's sort of, you know, more of Mao's and, lure to the enemy in deep, uh, which is sort of the, the nature exactly. of the 64 strategy. Uh, exactly. So, um, and this comes, so what, the, the, this focus on forward defense and a standardized, modernized force, it, you know, first appears in 1956. And as we'll talk about in a minute, it comes back pretty significantly in 1980. Right, this idea uh, of this interregnum of active defense, the, the title um, of the book. Um, you know, you talking yes. about the 1950s as a period of pretty unprecedented party unity. Uh, I would certainly agree. Uh, presumably, though, there were times when there were major changes in the conduct of warfare internationally that Beijing would certainly have been wise to, would certainly have seen, but that somehow didn't result in changes of strategy because, if your theory holds, uh, because those changes took place during periods of relative disunity within the Chinese leadership. So, mm-hmm. what were some examples of periods of disunity that happened to come? after some otherwise teachable moment in international warfighting? So I would highlight two in particular. We may get to them a bit more in a minute. But one would be uh, the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, sometimes also referred to as the Yom Kippur War. Uh So this uh, had really important lessons for uh, the role of armored warfare um, in in modern warfare at the time, as well as uh, the the role of air power. Uh, And it actually probably was a pretty important uh, window into how the Soviets would invade China, which uh, China feared they would do. Uh, But because of the upheaval of of the Cultural Revolution, to include uh, the purge of Limbiao and his associates from, or the death of Limbiao and the purge of his associates from the PLA, the ongoing struggle uh, between uh, the radicals and others before the death of Mao, then after the death of Mao, the struggle between uh, Deng Xiaoping and Hua Guofeng, the party the party was, or the military was not able to act upon this uh, conclusion that the nature of warfare had changed and it might need a new strategy to deal with the Soviet uh, invasion. So that's probably the best single example. A second example uh, would have to do with uh, China's uh, somewhat delayed response uh, to the Gulf War. Mm. Uh, Now, now the Gulf War um, uh, throughout the world, uh, I think, had a really significant impact on how all militaries viewed uh, the nature of military operations. And I think China probably would have responded immediately to the Gulf War and tried to change its military strategy if it had not been for the uh, upheaval in elite politics uh, after uh, the crackdown and massacre in Tiananmen Square, which really put Deng Xiaoping on his back foot. And he had to spend a couple of years kind of rebuilding his authority in the party and rebuilding consensus uh, around uh, continuing reform. So I I would focus on those two. But the best example, I think, would be the 1970 three Arab-Israeli war and the fact that it took China seven years to develop a strategy to deal with how they believed at the time uh, in the early to mid-1970s, the Soviet Union would attack China. So we'll touch on the Gulf War again, but let's let's move now to the 1980 strategy to active defense, which is the title track from this book. Uh, why does it merit this distinction? Uh, or is it just that the 1993 strategy, which was called winning local wars under high technology conditions, just wouldn't have been a particularly sexy title? <laughs> that would not have been sexy. And actually, the full title would have had to have been Winning Local Wars Under Modern, Especially High Technology Conditions. <laughs> so, oh, you know, wow. uh, as my editor says, this book will appeal primarily to dedicated re- readers. But I think if I had chosen that title, there would have been even fewer dedicated readers. <laughs> <laughs> 
So active defense. Um, so active defense. I mean, uh, the word, so the, the concept of active defense uh, is associated with uh, sort of the early period of the Civil War in the 1930s. Uh, and then Mao's writings about uh, the operations and the encirclement campaigns at that time. And so it's a strategic concept that really kind of flows through uh, China's approach to strategy after 1949. And every strategy is said to be consistent with the principle of active defense. And the basic idea here is that strategically, China is defensive. It's not uh, offensive. It's not an aggressor. It's not a hegemon. But nevertheless, to achieve these defensive goals, it will, at the operational and tactical levels of warfare, uh, use offensive operations and means. Right. Um, the reason why it gets used in 1980 is... Uh, because of the strategy that was adopted in 1964. So uh, if we can talk about that for a minute, let me just... Oh, sure, uh, sure. So, again, so this is lure the enemy in deep, which is, lure as the you enemy argue, it's a, it's a throwback, right? It's sort of... It's a total uh, throwback. Right, right. So as Mao becomes more radical, and I will not, I will save the full story for the reader if they want to get anywhere, but basically in the early to mid-60s, Mao becomes more concerned with the... the uh, revisionism within the party, uh, and he becomes increasingly radicalized leading up to uh, the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution. And during this time, he basically rejected uh, Peng Dehuai's strategy of a forward defense, which ironically enough had been embraced by Lin Biao after Lin Biao uh, took charge of military affairs after Deng was, uh, excuse me, after Peng was purged at the Lushan Conference. And so China continues his emphasis on forward defense until the mid till 1964. Mao comes in and says, um, Basically, uh, let's go back to the strategy we used in the 1930s, which is to allow the enemy to penetrate deeply into China and then wear them down in the sea of people's war and so on and so forth. Um, right. From a professional military sort of officer's perspective, this was terrible, right? Because if your task <laughs> is to vent, if your task is to defend the sovereignty of your state, then the last thing you want to do is deliberately allow your adversary to come in and seize territory and perhaps weaken your overall war potential. Um, so this strategy that Mao uh, uh, devised, and this is the only time that a party leader um, intervened to really change strategy decisively in China. And the reason why, and the name that's given to it is active defense luring the enemy in deep, right? So active defense and luring the enemy in deep are placed on uh, the same level or they're given the same importance in strategy. So fast forward to 1980, uh, the senior military officers who have been watched, who watched what happened in the Arab-Israeli war, who considered uh, how the Soviet Union might invade China uh, from the north and seize Beijing, which is only roughly about 500 kilometers from uh, China's border with Mongolia, which at that point was an ally of the Soviet Union. So they thought this idea of, of basically ceding Beijing to their arch enemy was was terrible, right? Like, sure. Why would you yeah. want to do that? Uh, because it would have a, a huge impact on China's ability to mount a more protracted resistance it would devastate morale if the capital was seized and so on and so forth. And so starting really a few years earlier, you see senior military officers, especially two in particular, one is a guy named Su Yu, the other named Song Shulin, start saying that luring the enemy in deep is kind of strategic suicide. We need to stop planning to do it. And so when uh, the PLA finally is able to change its strategy in uh, 1980, the easiest way to do it was to agree to drop luring the enemy in deep from the from the formulation of the strategy, which left active defense. Yeah. So it wasn't sort of wasn't put there uh, to necessarily emphasize that that strategy was more active defense than previous strategies. But uh, it was the easiest way to make a change uh, in the guideline overall by simply dropping 
um, the second half of the formula that had been developed in the mid-1960s. Taylor, you just mentioned uh, the Arab-Israeli war uh, and other international events as being um, uh, uh, behind uh, some of the reasons behind the change. Um, But what about the Vietnam War uh, or the punitive strike uh, into Vietnam in 1979? Uh, Why should we not read the change in strategy as a response to the poor performance in Vietnam in 1979, given that it came immediately afterwards? Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a a really good question. So I, I try to make the case in the book that it wasn't nearly as important as people have thought uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first was that when Dung decided to attack Vietnam, he and mm. the rest of the PLA high command knew that the PLA was in terrible shape, right? And so it wasn't as if they went to bat- they went to war with an, a military they thought was pretty good and were surprised by the outcome. They actually went to war with a military they knew was pretty bad and perhaps shouldn't have been at all surprised by the outcome. Um and so, and there's very clear documentary evidence to this effect. They even, you know, postponed the invasion of Vietnam for a month to give uh, the recruits who had only entered uh, the PLA in December a few more weeks to train before they would fight. Right? I mean, this is this is not, you know, um, um, playing a winning hand. But there are also perhaps some other reasons. Uh, the first uh, has to do with the fact that senior officers like Su Yu and like Song Shulin had identified the need to change strategies several years earlier. And that appeared uh, to be, uh, in my view, uh, what was decisive. And then finally, when you look at uh, the meeting in September and October of 1980 to change strategy, there are almost no references uh, to the Vietnam War. And in 1980, uh, and that was still the sort of the live the, threat. The lessons right, of that, invading Vietnam would was... not necessarily translate in how to defend uh, China against a Soviet invasion because the way in which they, they invaded Vietnam was very uh, different than the way in which they thought they would have been invaded by the Soviets. The, the concern about you know, the Soviet threat was really intense in the very late 70s and early 1980s. I remember that the Soviet Union aligned its, or, or, or uh, uh, formed a treaty alliance with Vietnam, uh, which was, of course, I think the main reason why China decided to attack Vietnam um, at that time. It also uh, was uh, escalating um, the war in Afghanistan and Afghanistan is a neighbor of China's, uh, but I think more generally, it simply uh, revealed to China how malign uh, the Soviet Union possibly was. Wow. And roughly yeah. at this time, there were, I want to say, 50 infantry divisions, uh, 50 Soviet infantry divisions deployed along China's northern border, both in uh, the Russian Far East as well as uh, in Mongolia. So it was a real threat from their perspective. It was roughly a quarter of uh, the Soviet army was deployed against China. Now, it wasn't the best quarter of the Soviet army. It was probably the worst quarter. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I think from Beijing's perspective, it was a serious threat that needed to be right. uh, dealt with uh, more effectively than uh, allowing the Soviet, unions to, to, the Soviet Union to, to drive straight in and to seize Beijing and, and, and other key cities. So let's jump forward to uh, 1993, uh, the 1993 strategy, winning wars under high-tech conditions. The yes. <laughs> not very sexy book title. Uh, <laughs> what does that translate to in terms of structural changes to the PLA? Uh, where funding goes, uh, what weapon systems are emphasized? Uh, Great, that's that. a good question. So um, the ma- the main and most significant change I think associated with 1993 is this idea that uh, the PLA needed to be able to conduct uh, joint operations. Uh, namely operations that would combine 
uh, the forces of the three services, the Army, uh, the Navy, and the Air Force. And so one thing that comes out of the 1993 strategy is this explicit call to be able to conduct joint operations. And this is a, a dramatic departure even from the strategy adopted in 1980, which focused primarily just on conducting uh, better combined arms operations within the ground forces, or namely improving the ability of infantry, armor, and artillery sort of to work together on the battlefield. And so this was a huge sea change. So starting in 1993, you, you no longer see Chinese strategists talking about how to combine mobile warfare and positional warfare, or even asking if guerrilla warfare even had a role today. And in the 1980s strategy, they were still sort of talking about military operations in a Chinese context in those terms. And so I think this is uh, the, the point in time, 1993, when China really uh, decides it's going to uh, try to wage war in a completely different way than it had in the past. And it was enabled or, or believed it could do so in part because it no longer faced a existential threat of invasion from the Soviet Union or previously in the 1950s uh, from the Americans. And so the national objectives for using military force had changed from sort of ensuring the survival of the country to prevailing uh, in territorial disputes, uh, primarily as well as uh, Taiwan's unification. What this means, what, what this means in a, in a practical sense, is an effort to uh, reduce the size of the army uh, and uh, to increase uh, the relative size of the air force uh, and the navy. And by reducing the size of the army, freeing up uh, more and more resources to invest in. Uh, higher end or high end uh, naval uh, equipment and uh, air power. I see. I see. And again, just to match this up with your your thesis about political unity, uh, mm -hmm. after 1992, with the, the the journey to the south, uh, whatever the, the southern tour, Nanshin. The, yeah, Nanshin, <laughs> southern tour, right? Uh, at that point, the conservatives or the the sort of hardliners, the Chinese faction, has been sort of. Uh, shelved. There is no more debate over reform, and there is then political unity, so they're able to go ahead with that. Oh, but my, my question is, why do you regard the 2004 and 2014 uh, adjustments to the 1993 strategy? Uh, you, don't, you don't call them quite you know, new military strategies. Are, are they just sort of winning local wars under even more high-tech conditions? <laughs> Basically. So the reason why I don't view them as major changes, I think, is twofold. One is that they don't have a new vision of warfare, right? They both are still premised on the idea that warfare is fundamentally influenced by the way in which high technology is being applied to warfighting, although the last two strategies focus on the role of informatization, which is a terrible Chinese... <laughs> It's a word that just defies translation into English, right? right. Um, so, so, so they define uh, what high technology means in warfare as informatization, uh, but they still believe in focusing PLA operations on joint operations. They're still focused on prevailing in these main uh, sovereignty disputes, Taiwan, the the border with India, the South China Sea. And so there isn't really a new vision about how the PLA should fight. It's sort of refining uh, the vision that's first articulated in 1993. And so as a result, you don't see, with one exception of the 2014 strategy, you don't see the PLA engaging in fundamental uh, changes to its operational doctrine, to its force structure, or to training. Okay. This, of course, raises the question of what's going on with the reforms, right? right. Uh, and so the argument I try to make in the book is that uh, the 2014 strategy was adopted to provide the high level or strategic rationale for undertaking the really gut-wrenching reforms that PLA needed to undertake to truly be able to conduct joint operations, right? So these are reforms that 
were implied by the previous strategies, but the PLA itself as an organization could never fully reorganize uh, its structure to be able to conduct uh, joint operations effectively. Uh, and in particular, there's a, probably a lot of drift uh, in the PLA in the Hu Jintao era, in part because he wasn't as sort of actively involved or interested in military affairs. And so right. um, this is a huge change. I don't want to downplay this change. Right, right, right. This right. reorganization is unprecedented. It's the biggest reorganization of the PLA since uh, the 1950s. It dramatically reduces the influence of the ground forces, which I think had been the main obstacle to really pursuing the reforms that were needed to uh, engage in uh, joint operations. But it's not a new vision of warfare. Uh, it's so, a HR change, not a, a, a new strategy. Yeah, it's not a new strategy, but but it's finally changing the PLA to basically to be able to carry out the earlier strategies, of course, updated for their assessment of the role of informatization and warfare at any given point in time. And so it's a hugely significant change. If these reforms are successful, they're going to significantly increase uh, the military effectiveness of the PLA uh, and and and. For that reason, one could make the case perhaps that 2014 was a major change in strategy, even though I don't think it was a major change in strategy. It certainly was a major change in the organization of the PLA. Sure. They'd finally got rid of Guo Xiong and Xu Caihou and, you know. So one thing I learned in the course of doing this research is that some of the ideas that are associated with the 2016 reforms you know, have their origins in debates over how the PLA should be organized in the early 1980s. Huh. So in 1982, there was a there was a pretty significant discussion of whether uh, they should create a separate ground forces headquarters because at that time, basically the general staff department, which also oversaw the air force and the navy, was the de facto headquarters for the army, uh, and they thought to better or to improve relations among the services, the ground forces or the army should have its own headquarters. And that's what finally happened in 2016, you know, first first mooted in 1982. And so there's clearly an awareness, I think, in the PLA of the kinds of changes it needed to make. And this is perhaps one of the, the ways in which being um, a military that's part of a, a Leninist party is not so uh, conducive to your professionalism and that it can per- perhaps sort of degrade or delay the process of perhaps the most important institutional changes. Taylor, can we talk about China's nuclear strategy, which, uh, as you point out, is quite separate from other military strategy and doesn't play by the same rules that you laid out? Uh, It also doesn't seem to have changed much over the years, even as conventional strategy has changed considerably. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about nuclear strategy and the role of the second artillery? Sure. So in the book, I call it the exception that proves the rule. So as I hope our listeners now know, right, the case I try to make in the book is Chinese military strategy has been quite dynamic since 1949. Uh, the reason why it's been dynamic and there's been nine different strategies and three major changes is because uh, the PLA, uh, under these conditions of party unity, is empowered uh, or given significant leeway and autonomy to change strategy when it uh, believes it's appropriate to do so. But nuclear strategy is the one element of China's national defense policy that, that the party never delegated to the PLA, right? And so the reason why it doesn't change is because the PLA never uh, basically uh, got ownership of the issue. Um, and the reason why it was never delegated is because nuclear weapons were seen to be uh, so supremely important uh, for 
uh, China and for the party leadership that they wanted to maintain a very close hold on how they would be used and uh, what kind of strategy would be uh, developed for their use. And so uh, one of the hallmarks of China's approach to nuclear strategy from uh, 1964 is this pledge that it will not use nuclear weapons first, which means it's going to have a relatively small arsenal designed uh, to deter attacks on China, but not to conduct first strikes against other countries. And so it's what's known as a secure second strike. And Chinese leaders believe if you have a secure second strike, then you can deter nuclear use against China. And that uh, will fundamentally increase China security, even if you still have kind of conventional uh, conflict with other countries. Um, so the second artillery was set up to be the custodian of China's nuclear forces, but not a part of the PLA that would have any input into the formulation of what China's nuclear strategy should be. Uh, just to give the listeners a sense of, of the kinds of gems buried in this book, there's that great section where you talk about the development about China's uh, nuclear testing in, in 1963 uh, and, and the code names that they assigned within the, the Politburo Standing Committee, I guess, uh, to the development of the nuclear program. Uh, the bomb was called Chiu Xiaojie, right? Like Miss Chiu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the launch platform was called her her Shuzhuang Tai, her like makeup table, her dressing table or whatever. And then uh like uh the the the, the test launch was called Shu Bianzi or something like that. It's just really very funny. I, yeah. I would love to find those those communiques, you know, talking in this weird language. It's like uh, no, yeah, these were the code words they came up. So when they were talking awesome. on the dedicated phone line, they, they they would know what they were talking about without having to, you know, yeah, you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, <laughs> how's Miss Cho doing? How are preparations of her dressing <laughs> yes. table coming along? Uh, will Is she be able to complete? braid her hair on October 10th as planned? Or... Isn't it the case that uh, American uh, nuclear program has also attracted lots of silly names? I mean, the bombs get cutesy names. Yeah. Um, and there is also some uh, odd, you know, um, difference with the treatment of nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, sure. the president gets the nuclear football uh, following him around and he, he can just, you know, instantly launch a nuclear weapon without the usual process for war. So it, it doesn't seem that surprising uh, that the Chinese also have cutesy names and a different strategy for their nuclear arsenal. That's a good point, Jeremy. But um, turning to another increasingly deadly threat, uh, what about cyber, Taylor? Uh, where does that sit? Uh, and when did cyber become part of China's military strategy? So cyber, uh, I think, first becomes part of military strategy in the 2004 uh, adjustment to the 1993 strategy. And this is one that is made uh, to highlight informatization as the conditions under which wars will occur. And you see China here uh, studying pretty closely uh, the Kosovo War as well as uh, the Iraq War, uh, but also uh, becoming much more concerned after the Kosovo War about a future potential conflict with the United States and trying to understand uh, some of America's vulnerabilities. And one vulnerability they identified was the fact that uh, the American military used unsecured uh, networks uh, for its logistics, uh, and thus those could be hacked and potentially disrupted, thus uh, not crippling the United States, but certainly uh, hampering its ability uh, to fight for a period of time. Right. Uh, at the same time, you have kind of the overall rise of the internet, and so China, like everyone else, I think is paying more attention to cyber. Um, but where it really, uh, I think, comes into play is in the 2014 strategy, uh, because at, around this time, 
uh, you see a centralization or re-centralization of cyber units uh, under uh, the CMC and what is created in 2016 known as the Strategic Support Force, which basically has uh, two uh, main functions. One is cyber, uh, cyber operations uh, in particular, and the other has to do uh, with things related to space. And so in this way, uh, cyber is seen as something supporting all uh, PLA operations, both um, from a command and control perspective, because the idea under informationized conditions or informationized warfare is, is the real-time acquisition, collection, processing of information uh, to, to, to you know, facilitate joint operations and you know, command units efficiently and effectively. And so cyber, on the one hand, is an enabler of military effectiveness in that way. But on the other hand, specific uh, cyber weapons are also uh, something that uh, the PLA can now envision using uh, if it has to in a conflict, especially with a country uh, that is quite uh, dependent, like the United States is on uh, computer networks. That's right. So, Taylor, you dangle a tantalizing little bit at the end of the book uh, about how, you know, given the fact that China is always determined to sort of keep up with technological advances and given the obvious applicability of all these advanced technologies to defense, could China go from a state that merely sort of watches warfare in the international arena and takes notes and then adjusts? to become actually a state that others are going to begin emulating, uh, a state that is it's actually pioneering new ways in warfare. Uh, how, how likely is this, and, and how, how would, you, would you relate that to uh, what we're seeing right now, this sort of effort by the Trump administration and by, by hawks within the, the broader American political scene to decouple from China technologically? So I, I think those two are separate, but l- let me take the first part of the question first. So I think... Uh, before, right, in some ways, Chinese military was quite reactive to what was happening around it uh, because it was uh, catching up both in terms of its inherent military power, but also in terms of its uh, defense, industrial, technological base. But now China has reached a point, right, where it's beginning to innovate uh, pretty significantly in certain areas of high technology and is on a trajectory, it would appear, right, to become even more innovative. And this could then open a new pathway to changing strategy that I talked about earlier, namely uh, ideas that might percolate about how China could use these technologies that it's creating and innovating um, to uh, transform war fighting. And so I certainly think China is more able to do this now and than ever before. Uh, which is why I sort of dangled it out there in the conclusion. I can't say if and when it will happen, sure. right? Because it has a lot to do with probably context and the nature of uh, of the technologies that are developed. But I certainly think uh, China is now sort of able to do that in a way that it simply wasn't able to do even in 1993 or 2004, right? And this is this is a really significant uh, change, and it opens up new possibilities. And I think it shows that 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 China uh, has potential to be. Uh, a leader in military affairs and not just a follower, although um, it remains to be seen how they'll lead and when they do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This certainly suggests that decoupling might be a good strategy and principle for the U.S. to pursue. But on the other hand, I don't think it's going to stunt Chinese innovation, right? Um, I think it might cripple to some degree uh, Chinese companies for a period of time, but it also could create even greater incentives for China to have indigenous technologies uh, that it currently doesn't have. And so uh, ironically, it could perhaps backfire from a military perspective if it uh, sort of accelerates uh, China's own process of uh, developing um, 
indigenous technologies and that's thinking right. about how it might apply I mean, that was my thinking. It's just having them sort of still continue to be dependent on uh, and, and sort of entangled with uh, American technologies seems advantageous to us. And the damage is already done, right? The Huawei engineers are already working seven days a week. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. I mean, I think China always wanted an, an, an indigenous capacity anyway, but this certainly accelerated the process. Taylor, to close out with the last question that may give our listeners uh, sweet dreams or perhaps nightmares, depending on how you answer it. Um, we read a lot about carrier killing missiles, uh, drone swarms, artificial intelligence used for warfare, space warfare, rail guns, um, and other scary stuff that uh, the Chinese military is developing. Hypersonic um, weapons, yeah. Yeah, hypersonic weapons. Um, what would a sober-minded analyst uh, say about all of this stuff? Um, that's a very good question. <laughs> not well, being I mean, one. I, I'm not assuming you're sober-minded. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, no, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you see China certainly exploring the military potential of a lot of technologies. And this, I think, is a kind of a long-standing feature of China's approach to military technology, where it wants to have some sense of what it takes to develop a capability, especially if it knows that other countries are doing so. So hypersonics is, is a good example because China's not the only country developing them. Uh, the United States is, Russia is, I think even India uh, did a hypersonic test recently. And so if that, if hypersonics become sort of more widely used, uh, then China would want to be able to compete in that way. But it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, China is going to uh, prioritize or emphasize all of these technologies that we just talked about. Uh, so I think you see uh, China you know, wanting to you know, understand what sort of the global technological trends are, how they might uh, apply to warfare. And a lot of what you see in China, you know, with respect to drone swarms, you know, are also being explored in this country. And so it it, 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 it is too soon to tell, I think, uh, what this means. Um, I think what it does mean is that uh, China is actively uh, exploring how to uh, make its military as competitive as possible. But one also has to consider what are the downsides of you know, deploying these technologies. You know, China wants to build an informationized force, right? That's going to rely increasingly on space assets. And so it's also developing you know, counter space weapons, uh, which means that uh, if it doesn't want to militarize space or if it engages in kinetic operations in space, its own assets might might be attacked, right? And, and really then how capable would the PLA be if it didn't have access to satellites in space? And so all these things have a double-edged, are, are in some ways a, a double-edged sword that you, you want to be able to know what your adversary might do, but on the other hand, you might be deterred from using them yourself because you also know what the consequences would be for your own ability to conduct military operations. Indeed. You want to own Pandora's box. You just don't want to open it. Yeah. And, and uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of these boxes will get opened uh, and, and applied and, and others won't. Um, you know, China, you know, as I think Julian Gewurz wrote about recently, right? Alvin Toffler was, you know, a, a huge sensation in China a few decades ago. And <laughs> yeah. You sort of see you see analogs to this in the PLA where they are really actively looking at everything that's going on. And then, you know, because they've got a, pr a pretty robust R&D budget, they can sort of explore these technologies. But the question is, when do you shift from sort of exploring the technology or, or even mastering it to 
systematically implementing it into your uh, warfighting platforms and thus changing how you approach warfare. And, and that, I think, is uh, simply hard to predict in advance. Taylor Fravel, thank you so much for taking the time and congrats on getting out this really important book. Uh, your knowledge you. in this area is just stupefying. Anyway, uh, let's, move, <laughs> let's move on to recommendations. But first, I do want to remind listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with the, the Seneca Podcast or other podcasts in our network, uh, one of the best ways you can show your support is by signing up for SupChina Access, which entitles you to all sorts of good things and will make you a smarter and better informed observer of China. If you haven't been receiving the premium daily newsletter that Jeremy and his team are putting together, you are really missing out. It's, uh, it's just fantastic. So thank you in advance. On to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. Okay, I would like to um, re-recommend something that I recommended some time ago on the show. It's uh, The summer has kicked in here in Tennessee in the woods, and all kinds of uh, plants are blooming. Um, and I've been heavily using PlantNet, which is an app uh, that has uh, you can take a photo of a flower or a leaf or a piece of bark, uh, and upload it and it uses uh, some kind of deep learning to identify it and it's getting it's really really extraordinarily accurate um, and it's a really wonderful way of uh, learning about uh, the plants around you so it's called PlantNet uh, you can if you sort of join it you can contribute and thus actually uh, make it more accurate hey, that's actually the deep learning is just a bunch of experts who look at them mm, I think that is a rhododendron though. yeah uh, it's, it's, it, well, yeah, sure, but then they plug it yeah, into no, a computer. I, I know, so, but it's great. No, we 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 use it. We use it here uh, all the time. Human enabled deep learning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, good, good recommendation. Good re recommendation. Taylor, what do you have for us? So I've got two on the the theme of the PLA. I wanted to recommend a book uh, that just came out a couple months ago uh, on the PLA reforms. It's called Chairman Xi remakes the PLA. It was edited by Phil Saunders at the National Defense University, along with a couple of other people. Uh, but it's only uh, 800 pages long. So if you oh, thought that's my it? Book was oh, that'll long, be easy. You'll, you'll, you'll want to buy this one. But it, it really uh, probably has the best analysis in the individual chapters of how uh, the PLA is being uh, transformed organizationally. Well, okay. My second recommendation, uh, if I can make two, um, is a book I haven't read yet, but I did uh, take a look at uh, the e-examination copy. It's called Making China Modern by a German historian whose name is Klaus Mulhan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it looks at sort of the rise of China sort of from the height of the Qing uh, in the mid-1700s until today, and I think tries to identify a lot of the institutional uh, similarities and how those have been uh, used or not used uh, to build uh, China into the country that it's that it's become, but it seems to sort of uh, try to tries to sort of bridge this idea that everything changed after 1949 or even everything changed after 1978, and really kind of I think looks at kind of the deep structure of the Chinese state. So I'm really excited to read it. I just haven't had a chance to do so. So perhaps by recommending it, I will encourage myself to to get cracking. Uh, I need to read it. it. Uh, it's sitting on my shelf. Right? I'm looking at it, staring at it right now. It's got this great subtitle. Or uh, it's called "From the Great Qing to Xi Jinping," even rhymes. It's uh, so that that book again is Klaus Mühlhahn making modern, making China modern. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of an update I've heard for, uh, to Spence's uh, search for modern China. I'm yeah. really psyched. I mean, I, I've I've cracked it, looked at a few pages. The the writing's terrific. Uh, if English isn't his native language, man, he's mastered it really well. It's it's an excellent book so far. Uh, Great recommendation, Taylor. Thank you. 
Uh, mine, I want to do something slightly nepotistic. I want to recommend another podcast in our network, uh, one episode in particular, which is the interview by Jordan Schneider of the China Econ Talk podcast with Peter Hessler. Uh, it's just, just a reminder that when it, and it comes to Pete Hessler, it's just it's not hype. It's all really there. Uh, his sense for for a story is can just really enviable economy with language. It's just amazing. Uh, even when he's just talking, uh, it's just all the things that make him a great. Um, he's just still got this sort of humility and this kind of. He's just such a great guy. Uh, Jordan's show, China Econ Talk, is fantastic. You guys have to be listening to that. He he's a really gifted interviewer. Um, he gets some really great guests. Gets really deep into uh, f- f- really important topics. So lots of gems in that back catalog. I I urge all listeners to to delve into that. Uh, I love all my children equally, though. <laughs> anyway, Taylor, thank you once again for uh, for for coming on. We look forward to having you back on again, maybe to talk about uh, more of this. You know, the, yeah, the thank technology you. is transforming so much for the opportunity. Yeah, well, we're we uh, looking forward to, to more work from you. Excellent. Jeremy, good talking to you, man. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Kaiser. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason MacRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out all our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and Talk for Talk, and the Middle Earth Podcast about the culture industry in China. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.